Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. A man named Christian Gerhardsreiter posed for years as part of the famous Rockefeller family. The alleged Clark Rockefeller used the Rockefeller family name to gain access to high-profile events, accept job offers, and he even married into a wealthy family with it. This Crockefeller, as he was nicknamed, was sentenced in 2008 to 27 years in prison, but not for his con, actually. His prison time was in connection with an unrelated murder, but the point here is, Clark wasn't the only Rockefeller skilled in the con game. Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarki. And I'm Holly Fry. Today, the Rockefeller fortune is spread out among more than 70 heirs, and the Rockefeller name is synonymous with not only booming early American history, but for a family legacy of philanthropy. Most of the family. Lots of families have a skeleton in the closet, and one of the skeletons of one of America's wealthiest families was named William Avery Rockefeller Sr., also known as Dr. William Levingston, or to his neighbors, Devil Bill. The Rockefeller family history can be traced back to the Rhineland region in Germany and to the town of Neuwied in the early 17th century. Family members began to arrive in the Americas in the early 18th century, and the first Rockefeller to emigrate to the United States was Johann Peter. Johann was a miller who arrived in Philadelphia with his wife and five children around 1723. 
He went on to become a successful landholder in both Somerville and Amwell Township, New Jersey. The family tree that grew through Johan on American soil became one of the most influential in politics, banking, and, as we've said, philanthropy. We're going to talk about one bad apple in the Rockefeller family tree, but we will get to Devil Bill in a minute. Though many of us think of John D. Rockefeller Sr. when we think of this family and its legacy, it's Johan who is considered the patriarch of the American Rockefellers. So let's take a quick look at the details of that family tree. More than a decade after his move to America, Johann's cousin Deal Rockefeller emigrated from Germany and he settled in Germantown, New York, along the Hudson River. Jump ahead on the calendar a bit and Deal's granddaughter, Christina, married one of Johann's grandsons, a distant relative named William. But no, this is not our bill, not yet. William and Christina married, and in 1783, their son Godfrey Rockefeller was born in Albany, New York. Just one more branch to go. In 1806, Godfrey married Lucy Avery from Great Barrington, Massachusetts. William Avery Rockefeller, who would eventually be denoted with a senior on his name, was born on November 13, 1810 in Granger, New York, which is about 60 miles outside of Buffalo. This is our bill. He was the eldest son of Godfrey, who was a farmer, and Lucy, whose family descended from Edmund II, the English king, also known as Edmund Ironside, who was crowned in 1016. Bill was not an only child. He had two older sisters, Melinda and Olympia, and seven younger siblings, Norman, Sally, Jacob, Mary, Miles, Miranda, and Egbert. They rarely, if at all, appear in this story. William's parents, Godfrey and Lucy, enjoyed... On and off success, mostly off, though. Godfrey's aborted or misguided ventures exposed his family to a fairly insecure life. According to historian Ron Chernow in his book Titan, The Life of John D. Rockefeller Sr., Godfrey's personality traits and his hard life meant that he was, quote, a most unlikely progenitor of the Rockefeller clan. Because of bad business dealings, the family moved. A lot. They moved from Granger, New York, to Ancram, New York, then to Great Barrington, just over the border into Massachusetts, before eventually doubling back to New York. And we haven't included everything. We've skipped a few. The Rockefeller name is imprinted in numerous places throughout the United States, but perhaps most notably in New York City. Rockefeller Center, for instance, continues to be an attraction in Midtown Manhattan. And it's where you'll find such famous sites as the Rink, the Top of the Rock Observation Deck, the annual lighting of the Rockefeller Christmas tree. Bill, who was a New York native, was not one to stay put, though, even as a child. Bill is frequently said to have been tall and strong with a brash charm and rugged good looks. He was imposing, nearly six feet tall, with a broad chest and a thick auburn beard covering what's been described as an aggressive jaw. People instantly took to him. There are many stories of him as an excellent hunter, fisherman, rifleman, storyteller, fiddle player. The list goes on, but Bill had no interest in things like farming or any form of work at all. He liked to roam, and he was known to do so even as a teenager. In his 20s, he left home for good to begin a career on the road, peddling worthless trinkets and miracle elixirs. He was a lot of things, but one you can't argue is that he definitely was a criminal. And he was a thorn in the side of his family. According to historian Chernow, quote, throughout his life, he expended considerable energy on tricks and schemes to avoid plain, hard work. 
Bill was creative when it came to his swindling pursuits. His con games, especially early on in his con career, involved mainly peddling. Now, we have a little warning here. In this part of Bill's story, we're going to talk about some offensive things he did, specifically his affectation of disability in his con work. And if you would rather skip this part, totally understandable. Jump ahead about 20 to 30 seconds and we will meet you there. It's reported he frequently carried a slate hanging around his neck on which was spelled out, quote, I am deaf and dumb. And he used this during his travels so that, as he later explained, he could get away with eavesdropping on people, especially listening to gossip spread by those around him who thought that he could not hear those conversations. This way, he could gain valuable information for his next scam. This is, incidentally, also how he met his wife. The charming traveling salesman married the pious Eliza Davison, whom he met while selling his wares door-to-door in upstate New York. When she opened the door to her father's home and Bill was standing there and presented her with his slate, Eliza, as the story goes, was immediately charmed by him and remarked, quote, If that man were not deaf and dumb, I'd marry him. He was not. And she did. How she accepted that he faked disabilities and how she overlooked his chosen career in deception, we do not know. We know that she wasn't his first fiancé, though. In 1836, while he was busy fleecing the townspeople around Moravia, New York, which is just outside of Syracuse, Bill first met and courted a local woman named Nancy Brown, who was from the nearby hamlet of Harford Mills. Nancy, known for her beauty, did not come from a wealthy family, and Bill was still engaged to her when his eye wandered to Eliza, a redhead from a prosperous family. Bill and Eliza married in February of 1837, and with her $500 dowry, the couple settled in nearby Richford, New York, about midway between Ithaca and Binghamton. Bill hired live-in domestic help for his wife. He hired his former fiance, Nancy Brown. Historian Albert Berger told PBS in a 2000 documentary series on the Rockefellers that Bill was, quote, a scoundrel. Apparently an enchanting scoundrel in person, and he certainly enchanted Eliza and apparently enchanted a good many other women too, which is part of being a scoundrel. In the first four years of their marriage, Bill fathered five children, three girls and two boys, between Eliza and Nancy. Bill and Eliza welcomed Lucy in 1838, followed by John Davidson Rockefeller Sr. in 1839 and William Avery Rockefeller Jr. in 1841. As adults, those brothers would go on to found the Standard Oil Company, making John D. Sr. the richest man in American history. Later, Bill and Eliza would go on to have three more children, Marianne in 1843 and twins Franklin and Francis in 1845. Bill and Nancy had two daughters together, Clorinda, who was likely born in 1838, and Cornelia, born in 1840. Eventually, Eliza's family insisted, and maybe forced, depending on the accounts you read, that Bill move Nancy out of their home and back to her parents in Harford Mills, along with Clorinda and Cornelia. She and her girls did move and lived in Harford Mills for at least through 1855 or so, according to historical records. It said she married a man named Peter Burlingame, and they built a family together there. Bill was on the road for months at a time, and one Richford neighbor praised Eliza, stating that she was, quote, a most excellent woman. But that neighbor also sympathized that, quote, she bore too heavy a burden at that time properly to look after her children. 
Her husband was away for long periods, and she had to look after their farm of 60 acres and try to make it pay their expenses. She did not know at what time the shopkeepers of the village might shut down on her credit, and she worked very hard. That's no lie. Bill was not a constant nor a stable presence in his family, but to his children, his influence was large and lasting. Bill once bragged to a neighbor that he taught his sons about business by swindling them, quote, I trade with the boys and skin them. I want to make them sharp. He would also lend to his sons at whatever interest rate was current, and then at some random and definitely not agreed upon time, demand immediate repayment in full. Bill's oil tycoon son, John D. Sr., commented on that once, stating, To my father, I owe a great debt. He taught me the principles and methods of business. Always a charmer, there's also a story of Bill encouraging a young John D. to jump into his arms from his high chair. And when his son did, he caught him. He caught him the first time, he caught him the second time, and then he didn't. Bill dropped his arms and the boy fell to the ground. His fatherly advice to his son that day was, quote, Remember, never trust anyone completely, not even me. Of his childhood, John D. Sr. has said, quote, I had a peculiar training in my home. It seemed to be a business training from the beginning. In the early 1840s, Bill and Eliza moved their family to her hometown of Moravia. Apparently, this change came at the request of Eliza, who wanted to raise her children away from what she considered the negative influence of the extended Rockefeller family. But it also meant she would be closer to her own family while Bill was on the road. According to historian Ron Chernow, Godfrey and his extended family were a, quote, hard-drinking hillbilly clan. And Eliza was a devout Baptist who was not interested in that lifestyle. So with that, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. And now that we've talked about who Bill was and where he came from, when we're back, we'll talk about Bill's career as a confidence man. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions. And I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E 
dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day to day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older (laughs) in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their Brilliant Eye Brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with dust-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about Bill's time spent as a fake physician and the purple pills that he sold as miracle cures. Bill was a lot of things. There were a few flavors to Bill's con games, and most had to do with him peddling junk. Bill was on the road a lot, and he would ride into town on a fancy wagon pulled by fine horses wearing flashy clothing and jewelry. And this alone would draw a crowd, but Bill had other tricks up his sleeves to get people to notice and engage with him. Some reports suggest he would encourage people to peek through his kaleidoscope, and this was especially true if you were a new customer to one of his con games. The kaleidoscope was invented by a Scottish scientist named David Brewster in 1816, and they were really popular during the Victorian age as a parlor game and a popular part of American social activities during the second half of the 19th century. But not everyone had one. And the novelty of seeing one was kind of hard to resist. It was entertaining, yes, but it wasn't just for fun. It was a way for Bill to lure you into conversation with him and then into whatever his real con game was that day. Another trick that Bill would use to draw attention and gather a crowd to which he could peddle his trinkets was a shooting contest. And he had the skills to pull it off. 
He would put a clay pipe into a mannequin's mouth, stride about 200 paces from the doll, and raising his rifle, shoot the pipe out of the dummy's lips. And then he would pull out a $10 bill, that's a significant amount at this point, and offer it to anyone who was able to duplicate his feat. Many people tried, but very few people could actually make that shot. And the more cons that Bill ran, the less entertaining they were and the more complex they became. He began a con as a fake doctor, and it became a con that he ran for the rest of his life. He was known to ride into town and introduce himself as an herbal doctor or a botanic physician. As a botanic physician, Bill used the alias Dr. William Levingston, and his swindle was selling homebrewed patent medicines, mostly pills that he claimed could treat everything from digestive problems to cancer. His pills, however, were made from a simple slurry of purple berries, and one of his supply chains was a, quote, psychic bush that grew in his parents' yard. As Chernow recounts in his book, one of the Rockefeller's neighbors in Richford stated that Bill would, quote, warn his customers solemnly that the pills must not be given to a woman in a delicate condition, for they would surely cause abortion. Thereupon, he would sell his pills at a high price. They were perfectly harmless, and he broke no law in selling them. He had a remarkable imagination. Bill would leave for months, returning with cash and jewels. One neighbor recalled, quote, he would dress up like a prince and kept everybody wondering. He laughed a great deal and enjoyed the speculation he caused. It's reported he ran a legit lumber business at home, or at least he tried to, just a short distance from where his parents lived. But his neighbors speculated about his business on the road. No one knew how he got his money. Well, not exactly. Perhaps it was from his doctoring? Other rumors circulated that he led a ring of horse thieves, a theory that actually gained some credence after one thief, when caught, swore Bill was their leader, but, quote, too smart to be caught. When he was a child, John D. Sr. recalled watching his father count his money, which he refused to keep in a bank. Said John, quote, he made a practice of never carrying less than $1,000, and he kept it in his pocket. He was able to take care of himself and was not afraid to carry his money. But when he spoke about his father and his family's money, he always left out one key detail, the questionable ventures from where his father's cash came from. So here we have to have another warning. We have another problematic piece to Bill's story, and this one deals with sexual assault. We're going to get through this pretty quickly, but obviously we don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. So skip ahead. 10 to 20 seconds if you do not want to hear this, and we will see you on the other side. In 1849, Bill was indicted for the rape of a domestic worker employed by the family, a woman by the name of Anne Vanderbeek. The outcome of this case remains essentially a whole bunch of questions and very few answers. One big question that remains to this day is, why was Bill never prosecuted? We do know, though, that shortly after the indictment, Bill moved his family from New York to Ohio. There, he met a 17-year-old woman named Margaret Allen. Bill abandoned Eliza and their children to be with Margaret, and the pair married and settled in Illinois three years later. But Bill never divorced Eliza, and now, in addition to con artistry, he was also a bigamist, and he lived this double life for decades. 
one or two wives, either way, Bill still preferred his time on the road. He played his con game into Canada and as far west as the Dakotas. In character as Dr. William Levingston, Bill developed a roving practice over the next few decades. On a good day, it's reported he would bring in as much as $200 for his fake medical savvy. In his con as a doctor, Bill took on an apprentice, a Charles Johnston, and taught him, though it certainly really wasn't real medical training that he gave him. He made me pay him $1,000 for my tuition, which illustrates his shrewdness, Johnston later stated. Johnston also said that Bill never spoke about his famous son, John D. Rockefeller Sr., and described learning about Bill's family as a shocking bombshell. In 1881, after Bill had been in a near-fatal accident, Johnston asked if Bill's wife, and this wife is Margaret, not Eliza, should be informed upon what seemed to be his impending death, Bill responded, quote, No. Notify John D. Rockefeller, but be very careful and let no one else know it. An article that appeared in newspapers around the country in 1908, written by Dr. Charles H. Johnston, who ended up Bill's business partner for about a dozen years, recounted his practice as a physician as such. He had a fine team of horses, the best that money could buy, and a fine carriage in which we drove from town to town. He would have a string of eight or ten towns at once. He would drive into a town, scatter handbills in which the great Dr. Levingston asserted that he could cure all diseases, and we would have a suite of rooms at the best hotel, and to the doctor there would come the sick and the lame. In all cases of common ailments, he could detect the cause almost at a glance. We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. And when we're back, we'll talk about what exactly John D. Rockefeller Sr. may have learned about business from his father. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Welcome back to Criminalia. John D. Sr. never really spoke about his father, at least not publicly. Let's talk about how the press hounded the family at the end of Bill's life just to prove the famous John D. Rockefeller Sr.'s father was a fraudster. Bill may have been a show-off with his money, but he actually didn't have that much. The Rockefeller name and money were established not by Bill, but by his eldest son. The Rockefeller fortune and legend began to take shape when two of Bill's sons, John D. Sr. and William Avery Rockefeller Jr., founded the Standard Oil Company on January 10, 1870. Their success turned John D. Sr. into one of the world's first billionaires, and he went on to become a celebrated philanthropist. While his business acumen impressed Wall Street, the press was intent on exposing any unethical business practices. And that's because while John D. Sr.'s business techniques may have been more sophisticated than his father's, depending on how you look at it, that doesn't mean they were necessarily more ethical. He was known for using ruthless tactics to build Standard Oil, crushing any competition that refused to be bought out. In 1872, a story, true or not, emerged that there was a secret alliance between major oil refiners and the railroads, And that story is something that John D. Sr. attempted to use to persuade Cleveland refiners to sell out to his Standard Oil Company. Kind of like, this rumor goes away if you just sell me everything. That worked. And by the time he was finished, John D. Sr. owned 22 of the 26 refineries in that city. By 1880, Standard Oil was made up of 41 companies in various states and produced 90% of the refined oil in the United States. John D. Sr. became reviled by many around the country as a robber baron, and Standard Oil's headquarters in New York City were nicknamed a cave for pirates. In the early 1900s, Standard Oil and John D. Sr. gained attention for those alleged ruthless and corrupt business practices. In January of 1903, it was McClure's Magazine's installment of Ida Tarbell's series, The History of the Standard Oil Company, that gave it traction. Tarbell was 
one of the most influential writers in the early 20th century, a progressive-era investigative journalist who at the time were known as muckrakers. It was her 19-part series covering the history and practices of Standard Oil that became the editorial model for the type of journalism McClure's became known for. In her series, Tarbell began by looking at the chronological history of Standard Oil, and that included the men who founded the company. She claimed John D. Sr. and his associates illegally regulated the price of crude and refined oil by controlling refinery output, manipulating pricing, and dictating the means and methods of product distribution. She aimed to prove that John D. Sr.'s business model was to, simply put, destroy all his competitors. And that meant a monopoly on the industry. When asked about his business tactics, John D. Sr. answered, quote, we were all in a sinking ship. If existing cutthroat competition continued and we were trying to build a lifeboat to carry us all to shore, you don't have to threaten men to get them to leave a sinking ship in a lifeboat. And just like that, the story John D. Sr. and his siblings had been hiding for decades was out. Tarbell's series also covered John D. Sr.'s family. She accused Bill of posing as a physician and exploiting others for financial gain. She wrote about the allegations of sexual assault and horse thievery against him. During John D. Sr.'s childhood, she wrote that Bill had been, quote, the leader in all that was reckless and wild in the community and was classed by the respectable and steady-going as a dangerous character on whom no doubt much was fastened that did not belong. She accused him of abandoning his wife and children, and her expose didn't just shine a light on Bill as a swindler, but also on John D. Sr. as a con man himself. As a result of her work, in 1911, the Supreme Court ruled that Standard Oil was in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, and the company was dissolved. Her investigation, according to PBS, quote, exposed Rockefeller's father as a snake oil salesman, bigamist, and accused rapist. The discovery that Devil Bill was still alive set off a nationwide manhunt. And though he was known to remain tight-lipped, when one journalist showed him Tarbell's series, John D. Sr. replied, quote, the poison tongue of this poison woman. What a wretched utterance from one calling herself a historian. Speculation over John D. Sr.'s parentage seemed to be endless during the first few years of the 20th century. Even though Ida Tarbell had tracked down a name and a bit of a biography, the big question now became, where was Devil Bill? In 1905, the press began to hound the wrong man, 93-year-old John M. Phipps, who lived on a farm near Farragut, Iowa. The Phipps family is known for their business relationship with Andrew Carnegie and their involvement in the Carnegie Steel Company in the late 19th century and very early 20th century. Newspapers wanted to know whether or not Phipps was really the Scion's father. Phipps was said to bear a strong resemblance to John D. Rockefeller Sr., and the press made a lot of sketchy assumptions that that resemblance must clearly mean he was really Devil Bill. The Chicago Tribune sent a reporter to interview Phipps. Everyone wanted to talk to him. To the Washington Times, he stated directly, quote, No, I am not the father of John D. Rockefeller, not by a goddamn sight. He then quipped, quote, What's the matter with this man Rockefeller? Can't he find his father? 
During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer were the leading U.S. newspaper publishers in the country. In 1901, Pulitzer, who published both the New York World and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, put up an $8,000 reward for credible leads about Bill Rockefeller. And that's roughly the equivalent of like $280,000 today. It was a lot of money for leads. And Hearst, it's reported, also offered financial incentive to locate John D. Sr.'s dad, although of a lesser sum. It wasn't about Bill's parenting skills or his proclivities. Not really. It was about humbling the powerful oil baron, John D. Rockefeller Sr., and selling more papers as a result. Reporters began competing for tips on where he might be found, but for years they came up empty-handed. The Los Angeles Herald and the New York Times both reported on a man going by the name Dr. William Levingston, whom they asserted had to be the father of oil baron John D. Sr. Though they had his alias, they really didn't have any facts to form a story, though. In 1905, the Herald reported on a Dr. William and Margaret Levingston. And we should note, he did live under the name of his alias once he abandoned the family he had with Eliza. The Levingstons, it was printed, lived at 515 West Clark Street in Freeport, Illinois, where the fake doctor claimed to be an eye and ear specialist. In 1906, the Times reported that he lived in North Dakota. There had been a rumor that John D. Sr. had purchased a ranch there. Both of these mentioned that the doctor was disabled, that he was deaf and visually impaired, a con that it appears he just could not give up. And so it was impossible to communicate with him. What we do actually know is that during all of this chasing around for answers, Bill died at the age of 96 on May 11, 1906, in Freeport. We also know that Margaret, who was with Bill for roughly 50 years, did not know he wasn't legally married to her until after his death. After McClure's series was published, the press coverage intensified, and it must have seemed overwhelming to the Rockefeller family. Two years after Devil Bill died, the press still wanted more than Tarbell had given. In February of 1908, New York World reporter A.B. McDonald dug up new information, and the World printed a piece highlighting Bill's assumed names and his career as a con artist who was known to laugh about the money he took from people in exchange for his magic cures. The headline, splashed across its front page, read, quote, Secret Double Life of Rockefeller's Father, and reported that their editorial board finally had, quote, enough evidence to declare the oil king's father and Dr. Levingston were the same person. The article recounted wild stories of Bill's quackery and cons, as well as his adultery and bigamy. In it, Bill was described as a, quote, roving, mysterious person who left Freeport for months only to return with large sums of cash. From the article, quote, he would go to small towns, put up at a hotel for a week or so, getting out handbills and advertising himself as the celebrated Dr. Levingston. He advertised to cure anything but made a specialty of cancer and kidney troubles. And this totally jibes with what Charles Johnston had described earlier. Neither John D. Sr. nor his siblings ever publicly acknowledged the truth about their father's life. But when McDonald's piece was published, Frank Rockefeller, John D. Sr.'s youngest brother, called it all, quote, an unqualified lie, and stated that his father had been forced into seclusion. He continued, quote, The whereabouts of my father concerns no one but his immediate family. 
and it is precisely to protect himself from being hounded by cranks and others who would break in upon the peace and quiet of his retired life that he prefers to live in such seclusion as best suits his convenience, admitting to his retirement only such trusted friends who had demonstrated their personal attachment beyond doubt. When his mother, Eliza, died at age 76, John D. Rockefeller asked the minister at her funeral to say that his mother had been a widow when she passed away. He also floated the idea to the media, but it was one story that did not stick. Some newspaper reports that were printed before Bill's death, as well as accounts from historians, suggest it's highly likely that Bill and John D. Sr. were in contact, at least periodically and throughout their lives and that there may have been a gentleman's agreement of sorts that they never speak of the other. Historian Chernow has written, quote, Rockefeller probably never forgave his father, whose erratic ways had likely set him off on his exaggerated quest for money, power, and respectability. Shortly before Bill's death, rumors out of Freeport suggested Bill had, sometimes, a mysterious visitor, one who arrived in town by private railroad car. John D. Sr., perhaps? I think we could speculate about that one alongside Pulitzer and Hearst with a glass of scam sauce. Yes, indeed. Some questions will never be answered, but I can make you a drink. Okay. Obviously, I fixated on the psychic bush. <laughs> So I wanted to make a drink that was made with berries, ideally a little on the purpley side, Mm -hmm. to be the cure for what ails you, essentially. (laughs) This is a drink I am hoping you will like because it's a spin on one of your favorite drinks I know. And one of the other things I wanted to do, though, is make it so you couldn't tell how very strong this particular one is. (laughs) And you can't. Taste tested it with two other people and they were like, what's in this? And I was like, oh, (laughs) so much alcohol. So this one is going to start with five to six juicy blackberries. And you're going to throw those into your shaker. You're also going to add a half ounce of simple syrup or vanilla syrup if you prefer it. I always go for vanilla syrup, as we know. And then you're just going to muddle that. Blackberries muddle really easily. You just want to squoosh them down and get that juice out. Don't worry about the pulpy bits. We're going to strain those out. So once you have those muddled down, you are going to add three quarters of an ounce to an ounce of lemon juice, depending on your proclivity for citrus. Then Maria's favorite part, two ounces of bourbon. (sighs) Bourbon. (laughs) And then a half ounce of drambouille. Really? For anyone that has never played with drambouille or doesn't know what it is, it's a scotch liqueur that is very herbal It's got a complex set of layered flavors. Yes. When you drink it, it is intense and it's a lot for your tongue to process. Your taste buds kind of go, what are you doing? But it also is unique and hard to replicate. Put a ton of ice in that tin, shake it, get it really cold, and then you're going to double strain it. So whatever you would strain it with, whether you use a Hawthorne or if you have like a cobbler shaker that has that built-in strainer at the top, great. You're still going to strain it through a fine mesh strainer. Because you want all that blackberry junk out of there. You don't want any seeds or like pieces of skin messing up your drink. You want it very smooth. Double strain that into a glass with some ice. What this has made at this point is a very highly flavored whiskey sour. 
I will tell you this. I don't think it's delicious at this point. Mm-hmm. It's too much. Like the drambuie has added too much flavor and it's like intense and you can't enjoy it. But then you're just going to top it. You'll have some ice in that glass and you'll mm-hmm. top it with. I put club soda on mine. I did another where I did a light ginger ale and that was also very yummy, but a little sweeter. To me, it was less refreshing. That sweetness came through. Right. I guess you have to try them all. <laughs> in either version, you can't tell that there are two ounces of bourbon in the drink. That's amazing. Which is dangerous. Like dangerous drink. Between the blackberry flavor and from the fresh berries and the drambuie, like, and the drambuie is complex enough that most people can't always identify it on taste. So they're like, there's something in here. I don't know what it is. But they never, they could not guess mm-hmm. that there were two ounces. <laughs> <laughs> Until they try to stand up. Yeah, don't drink a lot of these. Always drink responsibly. I feel like I should get that tattooed on my person. To do the mocktail of this, we're going to do a little trick. Because we're not ever going to be able to replicate, in my opinion, Drambuie. But we can do something that is similarly interesting. So for the mocktail on this, we sub out. You could still keep your blackberries, your syrup, your lemon juice. Sub out the bourbon for black tea, which we often do. Trick to making this one unique is that you're going to make your own fake liqueur for Drambuie. And this one we're doing something interesting with. Because Drambuie also is made with scotch, so it has that whiskey element to it. You are going to take a cup of apricot juice and a cup of black tea. You're obviously making more than you need for one drink, but it's impossible to just boil down to half an ounce without making craziness. A cup of apricot juice, a cup of black tea, you want equal parts. You're going to season that with black pepper and you're going to let this simmer for a little while. As it simmers down and reduces by, I would say, about half, so you want to have about a cup left in your saucepan, then strain it out. You don't want pepper flakes in it. You just want it to have given it flavor. And then you have a very interesting faux liqueur that to me makes a good sub for Drambuie. Again, it doesn't taste the same, but it is similarly complex and does something really beautiful. And to me, actually kind of blooms in the drink in a way that's lovely because you still get that apricot flavor, but it has changed. It sounds delicious. It's very yummy. That is your sub out for Drambuie. And then you'll be like, but I have a cup of it. We'll make more drinks. Have a friend over. (laughs) You could also put that in like a glass with a ginger ale and do like a fake champagne cocktail that I think would be amazing. Or use it with champagne if you want to do an alcoholic champagne cocktail. You're still going to have an amazing, interesting thing. That is the psychic bush, which will cure what ails you. It's full of antioxidants from blueberries. I say making a fake face because I don't. uh, That doesn't count anymore. Dr. Holly Fry. (laughs) Two ounces of bourbon in your body. It'll just clear out any infection you might have. It's fine. (laughs) Cures something, maybe. I don't know. But I hope it cures your thirst. There you go. (laughs) Yes. Uh, In any case, if you make this, I hope you delight in it. We are delighted that you have spent this time with us and hopefully fulfilled some of your thirst for knowledge and wacky stories of history. We will be right back here again next week with another con artist and some more beverages here on Criminalia. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.